Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. Welcome back to Flourishing Together. On this episode, we have Mark Merle, founder and CEO of GetMainLobster.com and Black Point Seafood, one of our alumni from uh, the second year of the Junto Institute. And we also have Paulina Caprio, a uh, Junto mentor who has become involved with us in a greater capacity this year as part of our uh, Junto Women initiative. Mark teed up this episode with the topic of empathy, and it was terrific to see and hear Paulina also address the topic. Um, So unlike prior episodes, rather than uh, just commenting on what they shared, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about empathy within the context of an emotional intelligence competency, and that'll come towards the end. So let's kick things off with Mark, who, as I said, is uh, founder and CEO of GetMainLobster.com and Black Point Seafood, a company that is based out of Portland, Maine. And Mark um, founded the company about nine years ago, uh, went through our program with his team uh, back in 2014, and has become one of our most steadfast students of emotional intelligence. In fact, last year he was in our inaugural master class in emotional intelligence And uh, to give you an idea of Mark's commitment, not only to his leadership growth, but also specifically to emotional intelligence, he has been uh, flying back to Chicago every month for the last several years for these Junto sessions. And so it's just a a real honor to know that someone is going to make that type of a time commitment, uh, not to mention the financial commitment in doing so. So let's start things off with Mark. Well, I'm really happy to have uh, one of our first alumni here today, Mark Merle of Get Maine Lobster and Black Point Seafood. And we're going to do something a little bit different with uh, today's conversation, but we're going to kick things off with uh, seeing how you're feeling this morning, Mark. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me, Raman. I'm excited. And uh, so today I'm feeling both eager and anxious. Feeling eager because there's some exciting stuff going on in the business and some great opportunities ahead of us and taking the appropriate action. So I'm just eager to move those along so that we can start uh, experiencing the growth we we love uh, and desire. And then anxious, just typical, no particular reason. I'm often anxious uh, just to carry the burden of operating, running a business and, and all that. So it's just par for the course. And uh, after a morning when I was feeling cheerful, content, uh, and deeply touched, um, the last 10 to 15 minutes I've been a little agitated, <laughs> frustrated, and annoyed, uh, and aggravated. Uh, due in no part at all to Mark, it was something totally different, um, but hopefully I'll be moving back into those areas uh, that I was earlier. So let's start with uh, your first recollection of leadership, Mark. I would have to say that that would likely have to be a coach. I was a three-sport athlete from six years old on and 
Uh, so I had lots of different experiences with coaches. So if I think of my first recollection, it, it would have to be a coach. You know, there was always something unique and different about how they carried themselves. All right. We're going to do something a little bit different with this conversation. We're going to talk about empathy. And I didn't send any questions in advance to Mark, but instead, uh, because of the relationship that we have, uh, just asked him what he wanted to talk about. And that's what he came up with. So first question, first kind of place I want to go with this, Mark, is why? Why empathy? Empathy, I believe, is probably the most important variable as it relates to taking humanity to an amazing level of peace, love, and happiness. You know, I think in a, my brain works in a different way. And I think in the, in the business, I use empathy as a tool and then, and I hate to use the word trick, but then I often think about how can I trick leveraging empathy people to behave the way I want them to. And it, it's still authentic. It's not, I'm not being fake. I'm not saying, hey, I'm a mean person, but I'm going to use empathy to make you do what I want you to do. It's that I believe empathy is the appropriate ingredient, ingredient for approach you know, to anything. It sounds to me like what you're getting at when you use the word trick, and I know you're kind of uncomfortable using that particular word because it can yeah. refer to manipulate, but it sounds like it's more about influence. Influence. Is that, Absolutely. Which yeah. is what we all are trying to do as marketers, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And so when I look at how I use empathy on a daily basis as a means of influence, it's to show that the core of what we do is to deliver something exceptional, an experience that is going to have a lot of value for you, right? So having that be the core uh, of what it is that I want people to understand, then what is it that I have to provide? And the only way to know what to provide is to have empathy for what I believe somebody will need to have such experience. Just so I have a sense of where we can go with this conversation, how do you define empathy? I mean, the, you know, the classic definition that makes it easy for me to communicate it is you, know, you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Um, I know that empathy uh, has evolved, you know, so it's much more than that. But, um, to me, it's really being able to fully understand what someone else needs in order to have the outcome that they desire, right? So if I'm lucky enough to be in a position to help with that outcome, then I really need to have a full understanding of what their desire is. And so as I referenced in my uh, introduction to you, you took our masterclass last year on leading with emotional intelligence, and we actually spent a whole session on empathy. Right. Do you remember the three levels of empathy and which one relates directly to how you just defined it? Um, I do now. Um, so there's cognitive empathy, there's uh, emotional empathy, and then there's compassionate empathy. So with cognitive uh, empathy, you know, you're really just understanding somebody else's perspective. With emotional, you're able to 
feel their feelings, right? You're able to say, you know what? I've actually, I can empathize. I had a parent that passed, you know, something like, I haven't, but I'm saying, you know, somebody might say that. And then from a compassionate, that could be, I think, well, here's an example. I was picking up my daughter from school and there was an altercation between two boys. And I just naturally got out and broke it up. And so that would be an example of compassionate. Um, nobody wants to fight. <laughs> so I was like, they don't want to fight. Um, but they were about to. And so I broke it up before they had to. And so that's a, a good example of that. Well done. Nice. Uh, you, you passed <laughs> the quiz, A+. plus. So it's interesting because the way you teed up a definition of, your definition of empathy, it sounded like you were going at, the, at it from a cognitive standpoint. Right, because you talked about fully understand. You you even use the word understand, which is more of a cognitive function. Well, I think one of the things I learned as we uh, went deeper into the idea of empathy is that it's much more complex than that. But cognitive is, you know, for me the easiest one to relate it. But it's a much richer term than I think a lot of people know. Uh, one of the things that I've uh, discovered in better understanding what compassion is and what compassion empathy is, which as kind of Mark was was uh, referring to, is this idea of taking an active interest in someone. And so back to the example of the two boys is in truth, Mark was demonstrating compassion empathy because he didn't want either of the boys to get beat up mm -hmm. get hurt. Right. And so he's taking an active interest in them by actually um, doing something actionable, which is breaking up the fight. Right. How have you used empathy in your personal life and you know set, set this up for our audience in terms yeah. of your family life because you've talked a lot about that right. i'd love to, for you to share some some uh, more details on it well that's that's going to be a tough one because i often describe my empathetic abilities as situational and something i've learned about myself is that i have more empathy for strangers than i do the people closest to me that I love. And I think that might be an intimacy issue that I have and I've always had that, you know, I've got to figure out. So I have a 16-year-old daughter and she has limes and I don't understand limes. And sometimes she feels great, you know, and she's a lot of fun. Um, sometimes, you know, she's not feeling well and I've never been one to have a lot of empathy for people being sick uh, and not feeling well because I tend to just go through it. Uh, however, I did get sick twice this year. So, it, yeah, that's an interesting one for, for me that curious to get through that and feel a deep empathy uh, in a different way. I mean, you've been, you said you've been sick twice this year. Yeah. I even presume before this year you've been sick many times in your life. So you can understand it, right? You understand the logic yeah. and the intellectual aspect of being sick. Yeah. So you can have the cognitive empathy. It sounds like correct right, the area that you're struggling with. I don't have the emotional. That. Right. And yeah. maybe even the compassionate empathy uh, as a result. Yeah. Would that be fair? I believe you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think that's absolutely it. You know, I can understand because I've been there. That's why I that's why I explained um Situ situational, you know, 
certain situations where I don't reach the full level. I don't get the feeling. I get the understanding. Right. So that's it. It's, I find it fascinating. I don't think it's uncommon from, um, this is a kind of a meta experience because we do so much work in the area of empathy since it's a core component of emotional intelligence that this is uncommon for people to have or experience or express less empathy with their personal relationships relative to their professional relationships. Has that been a pattern of yours in your life? I don't know. I think so. I mean, it's just, um, it's interesting where, so I could watch a video on YouTube and not even know who the person is and have an experience of emotional empathy. Yet someone I love could be physically upset right in front of me and I don't feel anything and I don't know what to do. Right now I'm getting better at it, right? Because I'm getting a stronger understanding of myself so that I know who I need to be and and sometimes saying nothing is okay. But I look forward to evolving into being able to go from the cognitive to the emotional to the compassionate so that I can have the full human experience of it, right? So the selfish part of that. So um, what are you working on these days when it comes to empathy? Well, I think I'm constantly working on it in business, you know, I deliver uh, perishable food products often for a celebration and usually an important one. So, you know, that's ingrained in everything that we do from our marketing to our communications about the order that they placed and, you know, everything like that. But, you know, I think I'm working on it, to be honest, like constantly just from awareness in understanding what affects me and where can I show empathy to any given situation, whether it be personal or otherwise, emotional or, you know, compassionate. But um, one of the things I'm really trying to work on is to get more business, to get all business leaders to really look at how Empathy can be a valuable tool for commerce, but it's also a more enriching way to run business, you know? So unpack that for me because um, empathy is now a core part of the tech world, right? And design thinking and uh, customer development, which is a process by which many startups figure out whether their uh, market has a problem that they can solve. But unpack for us how existing companies can use empathy, mm. uh, especially as a tool, as you mentioned, right. both with their customers, but also in running the company uh, yeah. with respect to their people. So I think as it relates to using it for your customer, you know, there's no better way to deliver on your promise than to have a full, rich understanding of your customer and the net desire that they want. Uh, example, you know, our product is expensive. Over time, we gather information as it relates to value. Value for some people is the dollar amount. 
value for other people is the amount of stuff that's in the box. And then value for others is that this is just super cool. You know, I'm flying this in. So understanding that you have, in my case, three personas that you need to communicate to in three distinctive ways. Engineer how how you say things. Engineer the products that you offer accordingly based upon the net desire that they have personally. That turns into lower cost in serving your customers, higher loyalty and retention rate, right? Which we all know is has a lower cost. When you're leveraging empathy in the workplace with the people you work with, you know, productivity is paramount. And if somebody feels that you're empathetic to them, then they're likely going to be more productive for you. And we also want everybody to have, and I probably, like if my team listens to this, they'll agree with some of it and others I need to work on. Um, But really trying to look at the, each person that you work with their whole life, right? And how can you enhance their whole life? So the only way, one, you need to have the desire to do that. And that's valuable too, because then, so labor inventory is at an all-time low, right? So there's not a lot of available talent to help you do what you want to do. So to retain the people that you have that are doing things the way you like them done and they're providing value to you, having a constant awareness of what they want out of life, how can their life be better, that's empathy. You know, and uh, you need to, well, I don't like to tell people they need to do anything, but uh, it's awesome when you can have a genuine emotional empathy towards someone so that they have an elevated experience here on earth and you're able to even provide a smidgen to that. You know, is this something that you were born with? Is this something that you, did you develop a sense of empathy growing up? Hmm. So I think there's yes and no. I was an emotional kid growing up. I recall feelings of empathy towards non-human and human, right? So you got animals. It's super easy to have empathy towards animals. I so I LL Bean I worked there during the holidays and I was always so impressed and they may or may not have known this at the time but empathy is everywhere with them right and I was on the phone doing sales and they said we want you to have quick calls but if somebody wants to talk talk right People love to call and talk to people from Maine. (laughs) And uh, so I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And, and, you know, it was interesting. So I was really good at what I did. So oftentimes, uh, if I knew my numbers were really good, I would walk away for 30 minutes when I necessarily wasn't supposed to. But 
my numbers were so great that, you know, they were like, Hey, you're doing an amazing job. You know, even though my time on was not, you know, all that much. Um, but also with, they had this return policy forever. Um, they had to alter it recently. Unfortunately, for the same reason, lack of empathy uh, on the part of the customer. But um, they said, listen, this is going to add value to your life for life. If it doesn't, return it, no questions asked. I mean, that's amazing, right? And that's the cornerstone of their business. Uh, they create a great product. They design around the desired you know, results that somebody, uh, their customer wants to experience. And so I learned it there uh, as well. So I think it's a little bit of both. I think empathy can be learned, but it's learned through sometimes forced experience. For example, uh, I volunteer, right? So I've worked on a Habitat house. Um, I've purchased stuff for people in need. Uh, when Hurricane Maria occurred, I gave money to people in Vieques, you know, things like that. And um, if people do not feel like uh, empathy is natural for them, I think you can force it, <laughs> you know? So you brought up animals. So I'm going to go into some touchy territory here because it's the collision of this topic with what you do as a mm -hmm. business. There are a lot of people out there who don't eat meat, don't eat seafood, partially, if not entirely, because they don't believe in consuming other living organisms, creatures like those that live in the sea, in the ocean, and on land. So how do you reconcile your passion and belief and advocacy for empathy yet run this business? It's, it's an easy one. Okay. Empathy is personal. And uh, everyone is an individual. And the awesome thing about being alive, especially, you know, in this country, is that you have the freedom, right, to operate as you wish. You know, as we have a set of rules. And the rules are pretty easy to abide by. So we do get, I remember an article that was in a magazine about us. And somebody railed me on email. And so that I should be ashamed of myself for selling lobster, you know? And my response to her was like, I appreciate your passion. However, I'm providing a service for people that actually enjoy the consumption of lobster and seafood, right? And that's what I do. The awesome thing is that you have the choice to not do business with me, right? So... And it didn't take me long to come up with that response. So, and this might be controversial, but plants are alive. Air is alive. Buildings are alive. You know, so uh, everything is alive. There's uh, recent evidence that shows that rocks are living organisms. Yeah. That they are also alive. Absolutely. That they evolve obviously much, much slower than we do, but they evolve over time yeah. as well. Well, so I'm lucky. I live in Maine. And when you walk on the coast, I took a geology class. And whenever I'm, you know, whenever I'm walking with people, I'm like, oh, look at that basalt dike. And they're like, what the hell is that? You know, and that's when 
you know, two pieces of granite collide in what's called an upward shift on the seafloor, and then hot basalt, right, gets wedged in between them, and then the cold water freezes it. It's super cool. You got this really this black stripe between two pieces of light gray granite. So we have tons of basalt and tons of quartz. And that's proof. It's just in a different form. Its molecules are moving at a slower rate. So that's why it doesn't appear that it's flexible or alive, you know, but it is. So I appreciate what you said about that woman who said, you should be a chamber of yourself because she was shitting on you, right? And the truth is, is that she might feel ashamed for you, might have empathy for you. You can have cognitive empathy for her, mm-hmm. but you evidently don't have the compassion empathy and you're not going to act on her concern. No. no. And that's something I actually really value about myself because when everybody gets shitted on a lot, that's probably one of the biggest things that I pulled from Unto is the whole shooting thing. And I, I stop myself a lot, but when somebody shoulds me, it's a trigger. I literally shut off and I can't hear anything. As a business owner, right, you know, I have to respond. Actually, I don't have to respond to that, but I choose to uh, because sometimes I don't respond. And, uh, for example, if I'm running an ad on Facebook and somebody says I'm a ripoff, and then I'll look them up to see if they're in the system. And I said, well, it's interesting that you would come to that conclusion because I haven't noticed that I've served you. So I really want to apologize for how you're feeling, but I'm trying to get a better understanding of your position, <laughs> you know? So I kind of just, you know, umto their ass. And, and <laughs> when you do that, do you even get a response from them? Rare, but sometimes I do, and then we get engaged in a conversation, and that leads me into a story in which I got misinterpreted on a global level as it relates to my assumed position on Brett Kavanaugh and Susan Collins, our state senator. It luckily it was only for about twelve hours, but I was getting bashed, and I called. There was five that were severe and I got back to every single one of them and I called them on the phone because they left voicemails, not on my phone, but on our business phone. Every single one of them changed their tune, every single one. And I simply said, I am a human and my position is neutral. I'm not for or against the Kavanaugh thing, right? What I was against was that Susan took 45 minutes to state her case when all she had to do was vote. You know what I mean? And it makes, you know, we had, there's a ripple effect of our leaders, you know, stuff, but that's not the story. The story is it's proof that these people that lash out, they're not doing it. They're brave for some reason because they think that no one's going to respond to them. So I think as leaders, we should be responding to that in a human way and having empathy for the one that is trashing us, because you'll see that you're going to change, you're going to impact somebody's life in a major way. And that is an awesome ripple effect. And that gets back to the whole thing where I think empathy is the most important ingredient in business. So let's stay on this. How all of us in business have dissatisfied customers or cynical people in the marketplace, how do we use empathy in order to confront that? One of the things that we do is 
We focus on the net experience and we promise that we're going to deliver you an exceptional experience. So we first apologize that we failed to deliver and you did not have an exceptional experience. What can we do to make this right and be willing to make it right? You will get people that will take advantage of you for that. Not as many as you think, right? You think that everybody's going to start to abuse you and da 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 and just, you know, claim it. But no, what people really, really want is a company that treats them like family and gives them a valuable service or product. It's that simple. They actually really desire that. Yeah. We, as you know, we talk about this in, in Junto a lot that people want value and they want to feel valued. Yeah. You just nailed that. Yeah, totally. You treat them like family, give them a value, what they perceive as value because it's personal. Everything's different, right? When I talked about the three ways, it's either money, amount, or experience, then you really have to understand who it is you're talking to at that given time and deliver it. But you can make it simple for you, right? We said, we're going to deliver you an exceptional experience. It's going to be unforgettable, right? Or we make it right. And then the other part is expect us to treat you like family. And we do. And I'm lucky that my team does. We're not perfect, right? I've made mistakes. Everybody's made mistakes. But we don't make a lot of mistakes, you know? And the benefit to us is that we have a really loyal, loyal customer base. And some of the messages that we receive would make people teary-eyed. Right. So so and so's last dinner. Last time I'll, I'll ever see him smile again. I haven't seen him smile for months. I put the lobster in front of him and, he, and I could actually see him smile. And he passed away a week later. And I had the honor, right, of being the owner of the company that he chose for his dad. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And I cherish that. And that's what drives me is that I have the opportunity, even though I can't see it and be there. You never know how important it is to the other one. So why not treat every single one like it's their last dinner? You know, we say that to ourselves a lot. This might be your last, you know, your last day on earth. What would you do? Well, why don't you do that every day? <laughs> you know? We're going to move into closing appreciations. You want to start or you want me to start? I'll start. Well, it's obviously it's appreciate being asked, you know, to do this, but my largest appreciation is just, as you could, you know, the audience can't see me, but, you know, when I get on the topic and I get excited, I start talking fast and I start talking clear and my body moves and my energy's up. And I mean, I could live off of that stuff. I mean, that, that you put that in a can <laughs> and drink it. I mean, wow, the whole world would be different. So I just appreciate being able to, for you guiding me to, those points where I really got excited, you know. Duly noted, Mark. Uh, I appreciate the energy and passion you just demonstrated. And as you mentioned, um, people can't see what you were like, but his posture, you know, he straightened out. Um, he made laser-like eye contact. He had this big smile on his face, but intensity. And so I've always appreciated your passion for what you uh, believe in and what you practice. Um, I also appreciate your gentleness, that you, uh, you're kind of a gentle giant, and a lot of people in Junto have described you as that. So it was, it was 
really enjoyable and I appreciate seeing both sides of that uh, during this talk. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Paulina Caprio, who is um, a change management and culture transformation advisor. She works with companies on business transformation, strategic changes, and culture change. She has a really interesting background in terms of how she was led to that area, uh, which I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, um, only because she actually uh, talks about it during our conversation. Uh, She's been a wonderful mentor for us at the Junto Institute for the last few years, and uh, this year she joined us in our Junto Women Initiative and playing the role of a facilitator, whereby she helps facilitate our breakout conversations that are held for the women who attend these sessions and has demonstrated her you know, true capacity to uncover people's desires and, and ideas in a way that contributes to the um, overall learning of each group. So we're really excited to not only have her involved in Junto Women, uh, but also on this episode of Flourishing Together. Well, I'm really excited to have with us today uh, Paulina Caprio, uh, one of our longtime mentors and also a facilitator for the new initiative that we launched this year, uh, Junto Women. Uh, Welcome, Paulina. Hi, Raman. It's great to be here. So as we typically do, we're going to start by finding out how you're feeling. So today, right now, I'm feeling a number of things. Really, it's a combination between feeling nervous, got a little bit of butterflies in my stomach, but also excited about this wonderful opportunity to sit and talk with you and also really just connect with such an important topic. Thank you. I am still feeling a little enchanted from this morning when we had our uh, Junto Women quarterly session. Also very thankful and maybe even a little dismayed and um, disappointed, maybe. Yeah. Um, As a result of something else that happened this morning. But in any case, uh, let's kind of dive right in and hear from you about the first recollection you have of leadership. So just a little bit of context. I was actually born in Russia. I was born in Soviet Russia and then came to Canada when I was five and a half and grew up in Canada. So my earliest recollection of leadership was actually Soviet political leaders. When we moved to Canada, my father was a dissident, which means he was imprisoned for political activism Hmm. in Russia. He continued that work in Canada. So that was forefront of what I was seeing when it came to leadership, because my parents did not work in a corporate setting. I really wasn't exposed to the corporate type of leadership and North American or American or Canadian leadership until I was much, much, much um, older. The other source of leadership that really goes without saying was my mother. She is a Russian woman and from a Russian culture, one thing that is first and foremost is it is a very command and control culture. Mm. There is no my way or the highway. You don't even get the choice of the highway. Right. So that was really a grounding force for me and and very pivotal in terms of the archetype that influenced me as I grew up and grew up in a completely different country. Well, that might, at least to me, explain a little bit of what we're now going to get into 
right? Because I didn't know about that background. I knew you lived in Canada. I think we've shared that before because yes. I did as well. And so you've shared your emotional intelligence journey with us a couple of times in Junto, both informally with me, but then also a couple of times in actual sessions that we've held. So I'd love for you to talk about the experience that you had, which kind of started or ignited that journey, if you will, and what has unfolded for you since then. Absolutely. So um, let's fast forward to a couple of jobs down the road. I am at Spot Trading. I have just been promoted to run the equity research uh, department, which I helped build. And as part of that, we started doing 360 reviews for all leaders because we're going through a leadership development and executive coaching. And I was getting my feedback from the 360 review and I'm sitting down and things are coming up. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. And my executive coach said, so Paulina, you know, one thing that we heard is that a strong feedback saying, Paulina will get what she wants, even if it means dead bodies. And I continue to go check. Yep. That's good. That's good. And then she goes, Paulina, that's not a compliment. And I stepped back and said, well, what do you mean it's not a compliment? I had been working at a hedge fund in an eat-what-you-kill environment in investment banking, uh, coming out of a command and control culture in my family. So this seemed like something strange. What do you mean it wasn't a compliment? I had been rewarded and paid to act this way and to show up this way. And so she said to me, she goes, you know, there's this thing called a bull in a china shop. And that's what you are. Mm. And when we do uh, leadership development coaching and executive coaching, there's usually we take two or three things. But in your case, I think we really need to just focus on one thing because I think it's going to really move the needle for you. And it's this thing called emotional intelligence. And I had kind of read about it, but I didn't really know much about it. But I did know that there were times when I said certain things or did certain things that I don't think went over well. And so that really catalyzed the beginning of the journey for me, which started with executive coaching, writing down when those things happened and people didn't really react in a positive way, to taking a year of improv training and classes at Second City to help me connect with other people and really uh, find some empathy. And then I think from that moment, um, what changed was my career. I left finance and hedge funds and trading. I went into restructuring, which was very difficult working with distressed companies during the recession, and then realized that I wanted to work in organizational transformation and with people. And then later going out on my own and what we now champion as failures, and to me was really a lack of attainment of the goals that I thought I'd have, really helped me become more empathic and learn and understand what hardships were about and how things were a lot more three-dimensional, that people were much more, there was much more to people than what they produced and what they did and the accomplishments they did or did not have. And so I feel like I've become much more of a three-dimensional person and that has really happened through difficulties and hardships and falling down and have to having to get back up, having a father who passed away, who had cancer, having friends who I held while they 
had tumors removed from their cancers, from seeing things that you normally may not see as someone in their 30s and into the 40s, that really made me, I would say, more human. And that journey is one that continues. It's, I think it's a lifelong journey for me. So that was more than what you shared with me before. So it's really um, enlightening to hear that. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and so this was one of the things I wanted to talk about is this pivot you've made from being in corporate and finance and trading and hedge funds, a world that you know a lot of people look at today with some cynicism perhaps some skepticism perhaps maybe even disdain disdain right for all that it stands for but for those of us who've been around for a while we know that there's a lot of great people in those industries and companies that um, make up those industries and you've made this big shift now to dare i say the softer side of business the people side of business um which is where it seems that you stand much more firmly so in making this transition what have you learned about leadership, even though it might be in hindsight, like looking back at it? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I'm going to say, which is um, to to talk about uh, when people say the soft side, um, there is nothing soft about people. And I would say the hardest thing to do is to have a conversation, a difficult conversation with people. And that's why a lot of people just don't do that. And they ask others to do it for them. And I think we're developing now an appreciation for that, that it's not soft, it is interpersonal, and it's challenging, and it's critical. So what I have learned very simply is nothing happens without people. Everything happens through people. So when I was spending weeks working on a spreadsheet to look at financial projections for a company, that can all go away if the people are not lined up, if folks aren't making decisions, if you have bad leadership, if there's fear and paralysis, a lack of trust. There are so many elements that go into making your number, um, whether you're going to make your 5% growth rate or your 8% growth rate, if your margin is going to go up or down. It's much more complicated. Even with technology um, and innovations, that all happens through people. So as a result, I truly believe that the most critical tool in leadership is empathy. And why? Because it's not about getting things done. When you're an individual contributor, you're getting things done and you're getting points for that and you're getting check marks. And then you get promoted or you get opportunities to be a leader. And guess what? That is when you have to make things happen and you are making things happen through others. And when you're doing that, it's influence, it's motivation, it's really relying on others to execute and to do and to show up in a certain way. You no longer have a one-to-one -one relationship between what you put in and what comes out. And so without empathy, you are not going to have the successes. Yes, you can do command and control, but that's not as successful. And so I really champion empathy as being the, that critical skill. Yeah. So you've brought up command and control a few times, uh, and this is something that I began asking people a couple of years ago, and I think it might be the first time I'm asking it um, in one of these interviews. What's your antidote from a language standpoint? Do you have like a phrase you use as a contrast or as an opposite, if you will, to command and control? Yes, I would say empowerment. As a leader, 
if you are empowering folks, it's about creating the environment where people can show up as their true authentic selves, where people can be, where there is safety, where there is trust. So it goes from what are you producing, what widgets are you producing to me? It's about you actually being invested in your people, caring about them as three-dimensional humans, what's going on with them outside of their offices, and believing in them, um, developing them, helping them, truly being passionate about um, who they are, not just what they're going to produce for you. So one of the things you mentioned was this idea of safety, safe environment. Uh, I want to talk about that because it's something very near and dear to our heart at Junto. One of our core values is we create safe and trusting environments for people to be themselves. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because of, I don't know if you saw a few years ago, there was a pretty lengthy article written about Google and what they found about high-performing teams and high-performing people at Google, which was um, the single biggest determinant of high-performing teams was psychological safety. And when reading it, and it was a very well-written article, very thorough, kind of combined the science with, with practice, it was one of those that, as a human being, I couldn't argue with. It, was, it nailed it on the head. And it was the first time I'd read that phrase in the context of business. And so it gave me language for what I like to think we try to do in Junto, which is to create psychological safety for people to discuss and share. This is a little bit of a bridge into the work you're doing, and we'll get a little bit more specific with Junto Women as a facilitator. Like, how does that happen? How do, how do we create psychological safety? Like, what do you think are some of the tactical things that we do, not just in Junto, but elsewhere that people do to create that type of a safe space? So I think before we get to psychological safety, I feel like um, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs needs to be at least referenced because before you can have psychological safety, you need to have physical safety. So, and as women who have been in the workplace for a while, um, we can definitely say that that's not something that we had um, or felt that we had. Um, so I think before you... Um, you even talk about psychological safety, we want to make sure that we have physical safety um, in our work environments where we are not even, we're not afraid. But let's leave that aside. I think with regards to psychological safety, to me, that means being able to be myself, to show up as myself and be okay with that. I'll be honest. Um, and I, I it's not just showing up yourself, oh, everything's great and everything's fine. There's fear with that that comes with it, but still knowing that someone's got your back. And it's one thing to just say it, oh, yeah, we have psychological safety, but you need to actually do it and show it. You need to be able to see it in action. And I think the biggest thing there is really for the people in power who hold the power is to be vulnerable, to show vulnerability, to talk about, to, um, failures or shortcomings and to reach out to folks to say, I have these shortcomings, which is why I need you, which is why I value you. So that a leader is not someone who stands up on a pedestal as the uh, pinnacle of perfection, that the leader is human, that she or he 
um, sees themselves as just like one of you. And to con- continue to model that, I think, is really important. So what are the behaviors that are associated that- with that? Um, it's asking questions. It's perhaps doing something differently. So uh, I remember when I was at, ch- at the trading firm at Spot Trading and the Bears were going to the Super Bowl, I felt like I couldn't even turn on the fight song because I thought I would be judged hmm. because it was a there were some cultural uh, elements in that environment. Mm -hmm. And so when people do something interesting or um, show up with something outside of their um, work environment, champion that. And also ask people, who are they? What are they like? You have to show, you have to care and love what the people are outside. And when you see a person as three-dimensional and all the things that come with that, then you're going to create that safe space Also, really importantly, is how you handle difficulties with people in the sense that when they're having difficulties at home or in a marriage or in their work or with their health or all of those things with the people that are close to them, Mm -hmm. are you understanding? Are you being human in those instances? And when you say being vulnerable, what can someone do? Because my experience is for people who don't have exposure to vulnerability, they tend to have a hard time processing what that means sure. to be vulnerable. So what what give, can you can you give sure. us a couple concrete examples of, of how someone can be vulnerable? I think the easiest, I'm not saying it's easy, mm-hmm. but one of the ways you can be vulnerable is to say I don't know. I don't have the answers. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. To not be that leader that knows everything. To talk about times where, where things haven't worked out. It's not just about how you're a great winner. It is how you've picked yourself up. It is saying, I'm terrified. Now, that's not a popular thing for, for leaders right, to do. Right. But to actually show and accept fear as a human reality is pretty powerful. Well, that's a great segue because you told me recently about some work you're doing on this topic of fear. And so what I'd like you to do is A, just briefly kind of provide an intro to that, the work you're doing on on fear and what the latest is on your progress with it. And then after that, like what you're learning and what you're hoping to accomplish. Okay. So one of the things I decided to, to do earlier this year is really start looking at fear. It is an omnipresent element in my work, in my life, I think in the human condition. And so one thing to also know, I studied neuroscience and neuropsychology. And so I understand some of the brain physiology that goes behind some of the things I'll talk about. And so that's where I started. Mm -hmm. I started with, with neuroscience and very quickly got to the place where as we know, the brain is a very complex set of systems, and fear actually presents itself in a very complex way in a set of systems that aren't as easy to untangle as to say, oh, it's your amygdala, oh, it's your limbic system, because there are elements of memory, the olfactory, vision, how it interacts with your uh, prefrontal cortex. And so what I found is that the answer is complicated. Mm-hmm. and so. 
I left that as it is mm -hmm. to say that it is a complex set of systems, which um, we as humans and our brains are as well. So then what I did is I, I went inward. Um, I started with some Brini Brown um, reading and then moved to Pema Chodron, the, the Buddhist nun who's written really powerfully about suffering, about uncertainty and fear, and really fear being part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And so as I started to learn more about that and see things that I've read before resonate, my initial intention was to say, okay, how could I bring a model of fear into my organizational work and the work I do around change? But as I, I gained more empathy towards that, what I have found is that it is not about bringing a model or a methodology to fix the fear or to change it. It is about how do you walk alongside fear and understand the range of fear that exists? Because you cannot go into an organization and fix it. People may not be receptive or interested, or this is not the right time, and there's too many too many folks on in too many places. But how do we teach others that this is the dynamic, that this is the reality? And then also, how do we operate through change and expectations and performance with the understanding that because this is part of the human condition, that fear and suffering are a result of our difficulties in being with uncertainty, that that is okay. It is not something we will eradicate. It is something that we will work with alongside. All right. So let's shift to um, one of my favorite topics these days and something that we're actually going to be talking about more and more on these episodes going forward which is the work that we have started to do with women and uh, women's leadership. Um, I've already referred on a couple of episodes to Junto Women, and you have been involved with us this whole year as a facilitator. And uh, dare we say you are one of the more experienced and mature women um, who's been involved overall. So I wanted to ask you, because you have been around I mean, so many younger professional women, not just millennials, but I think we're now starting to see some Gen Zs, yes. Generation Zs enter the workforce. What are you learning about them, these young professional women, the issues that they're facing and, and that are on their mind relative to the ones that you and your peer group faced as uh, Gen X and how they look at this idea of feminine leadership, for lack of a better Phrase. I think the, the the thing that struck me first and foremost is that today we really have, and today and 10, 10 years ago, X amount of years ago, but not in my day, we now have places and arenas to have conversations about women, about women in leadership, about our struggles, our hopes, our aspirations, which like Junta Women, which we really didn't have when I was a young woman in business. Yeah. And what I have seen and this is not exclusively, but what I have seen is that the conversations over time are moving from being angry, um, to have a lot of anger um, about the situation, to more community and sharing around our experiences and really sharing our stories. Mm -hmm. And I think we're ready 
to now have men in in that conversation as well. And I think that that's that's the natural consequence um, to where we need to go and to to have that continue in a very collaborative way. Mm-hmm. So in my day, I can't believe I'm saying this, <laughs> but in my day, um, the only place really for anything resembling these types of conversations were really leadership development um, workshops that, boy, aren't we so lucky that we as women got invited to because we finally got promoted to be able to mm. be invested in. Yeah. And what we're seeing now with, with talent management is people are being invested in much, much earlier. And so at that time, it was about learning leadership skills. And all those leadership skills and capabilities were the archetypal male um, leadership skills. And not only, I wouldn't even say that the what we're calling feminine leadership, um, it wasn't even on the table. Right. And so it was by default downplayed. But that created an interesting paradox because when women showed up in an archetypal male leadership way, not everybody liked it. But at the same time, we weren't empowered to show up in a more feminine way yeah. because that was not valued. And so now we have so many more role models of women who are now valuing and exhibiting and modeling uh, female leadership. And so that is giving us permission and younger women to actually go that way. But one thing I do want to step back is say is that the pendulum isn't necessarily swinging to the other side where women are saying, now we're just embracing only our feminine qualities. Um, In fact, the younger women want to be in an environment where they can choose and exhibit the leadership qualities that are most authentic to them mm. and do not want to be penalized for being one way or the other. Yeah. Yes, you have, you have, so you're going to have women who fought so hard in a male-dominated environment, let's say, for example, engineering or software development, they made it. And some of them don't want to be women leaders. They want to be leaders. Forget about the women. It's just we're leaders. We made it. We fought to get here and we should be recognized. Some female leaders are basking in the goddess, woman, nurturing, or stereotypically women, female leadership and providing a really wonderful role models. And others want a balance. And it's not really a balance. It's really a harmony because these are all continuums that sway and move in a very organic way. And what I would say to that is that we need to, and I am hearing even today, folks, Women saying, we need to have room for more paradigms, more archetypes, more versions of leadership. It's not just one or the other. I am not one or the other. I'd like to know what is your opinion, and if it's different than what it was, how it's shifted on this idea of women's leadership, feminine leadership. In other words, a label or a qualifier or an adjective that gets attached to leadership that is referring to the to the uh, gender. So my view on that is that when you're labeling just feminine leadership, it's just one piece of it. Leadership is holistic. Mm-hmm. And yes, I do believe that we need to see more honoring and valuing what we're calling female feminine leadership capabilities mm-hmm. in the workplace and business i mean natural capabilities right 
natural or learned okay. because let me give you an example. Yeah. If we're talking about empathy being a critical um, skill of leadership and traditionally more feminine, mm -hmm. then there are certainly cases where there are men who are getting executive coaching right here, yep. uh, right now as we speak, learning how to be more empathic, learning how to understand and put themselves in other people's shoes in order to become better leaders. Right. So it's not just one way or another, but I do think we do need to see more value in what we call traditional female leadership, but not necessarily say you need to be a female leader, you need to be a, a male leader, because what that does is that it separates. Yeah. You're again separating when we're supposed to be coming together, collaborating. When we talk about diversity, it's about bringing it all into the arena, not about standing on two opposite sides of the gymnasium. Yeah. So we're going to come to a close now. And as we do with most of our Junto sessions, um, we'll do that with closing appreciations. Would you like to go first or would you like me to? I'll go first. I very much appreciate this opportunity um, to not only speak with you about this, but to be speaking about this um, and to hear my voice and really the power of my story being valued and hopefully a takeaway is that any one of you could be behind the mic today, that everyone has a very powerful and important story. And it was really my pleasure to be able to share mine with you. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate your growth. It's not too often, I mean, it's becoming more and more often that I come across people in our peer group who have experienced a tremendous amount of growth that they have driven based on things that they heard from other people that other people said about them. And I too have been there. I think it's one of the reasons why I connect with that story so much, but to know that you not only acknowledge it, you've demonstrated your own vulnerability in sharing that story most recently right here. Um, but that you continue to do something about it. And that's really inspiring for not just me, but I, hopefully for the people who are listening today. Thank you. Thank you. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different than what I typically do. Normally, I will uh, provide some commentary on what our conversation partners, what our guests shared during our talks. But this time, uh, what I'm going to do is talk a little bit deeper on uh, the topic of empathy. And I was inspired by uh, Mark Merle choosing to talk about this subject. And then it was coincidental that it came up in my conversation with uh, Paulina. And as Mark and I talked about very briefly, there are three types of empathy. And so I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into those three types, but also share a little bit about the context of empathy within the discipline of emotional intelligence. And then also close with some thoughts on um, how empathy can be a powerful tool in our arsenal as leaders. Uh, I'm going to open things up with uh, this really wonderful quote that comes from the book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And that quote is, when you listen with empathy to another person, you give that person psychological air. The reason I, I just love that quote is because it 
it puts empathy in the context of interacting with someone else through something that we do every single time we interact with people, uh, and that's listen. But in my experience, what I found is that many of us don't necessarily uh, listen as effectively as we can. And so what this quote has done for me is to provide like an additional level of listening, which is to do it with empathy. And then recognizing that if and when I do that, I can give somebody else psychological air becomes this very empowering ability to change a conversation and accelerate the growth of a relationship. So in the construct of emotional intelligence, empathy lies in uh, what we call the third level of uh, building blocks. Um, the first level is self-awareness, the second level is self-management, and that third level is social awareness. And for those who are um, not as familiar with emotional intelligence, the fourth and final level is relationship management. So empathy falls under uh, social awareness, and broadly speaking, social awareness has three kind of high-level uh, components to it. First is uh, being empathic with and for other people. Uh, second is the ability to read relationships and emotional currents that may exist between people or within a room. And then third, um, the third component of social awareness is finding ways to work with uh, different people. So obviously we're, we're talking about that first component, which is being empathic with and for other people. And so as we kind of drill down a little bit more now from emotional intelligence to social awareness and then down to empathy, what's going to share um, what, what the emotional intelligence definition is of empathy. So empathy has different facets to it. There's sensing and understanding uh, the feelings and perspectives of other people. There's taking an active interest in their concerns. And then there's also a third level, which is helping others um, based on truly understanding their needs. And about two years ago, as I was going through the process of designing this masterclass of ours, I was doing some additional uh, research into empathy, and I was completely dumbfounded when I encountered this piece of research that was done by um, Daniel Goldman and his colleagues. And uh, Daniel Goldman, G-O-L-E-M-A-N, is uh, the author of the most well-known books on emotional intelligence, one of them which is called Just That, Emotional Intelligence, and then another one called um, Working with Emotional Intelligence, as well as countless others. And what I had encountered was that there were three different types of empathy. And the more I read about them, the more I studied them, the more I was convinced that this was the case. And this ended up becoming then the cornerstone of the session that we do in the Junto Institute on the topic of empathy. And I'll say that uh, besides the time when I first started learning about emotional intelligence, I don't think that there was anything else that I was so blown away by in terms of um, the complexity and depth of something that I think is extremely oversimplified. So what I'd like to do is kind of walk you through uh, what I learned about these three different types of empathy and uh, how they kind of apply to us on a day-to-day -day basis, um, both as human beings and, and also as leaders. So the three types of empathy are cognitive, emotional, and compassionate. And I'm laying them out in that order because um, I believe that there is some element of complexity to them and in terms of how they grow um, with each other. 
So we'll start with with cognitive empathy, um, which to me is kind of the fundamental uh, type of empathy. And as you might imagine, using the word cognitive describes that this is kind of the intellectual side of empathy. This is where we're understanding someone's worldviews and perspectives, or getting a sense of how they actually see the world. And by doing that, it informs us how to communicate with them um, because we learn um, what matters to them, what's important to them, and uh, where we understand what their perhaps cultural norms are or social norms. Um, and it gives us a sense of how they make sense of the world around them. And so the more that we get to hear from people uh, when we're listening deeply, how their experiences have shaped their views, um, how they look at the world, the better we're able to simply understand where they're coming from. So that's the cognitive type of empathy. When we go another level deeper is when we get to um, emotional empathy, which in my experience um, tends to be how most people uh, describe what empathy is. And uh, with emotional empathy, that's where we are feeling or experiencing someone else's feelings. And so an example is some of you or, or someone who you know might pick up a facial cue or a nonverbal cue that uh, you send when you're sharing some news. Uh, so for instance, if someone in your life has passed away and you express nonverbally some sadness and they immediately pick up on that and they also convey some sadness in the form of um, raised eyebrows or uh, a tilted head. Um, that's a really good example of how someone has picked up your facial or nonverbal signals and is demonstrating emotional empathy. Um, a lot of times emotional empathy um, signifies what we like to call chemistry, that uh, sense of rapport that exists, whether it's in a sales call or a meeting with an employee um, or in the classroom between students or between the teacher and a student, or even between a couple in their conversations. That's where emotional empathy is, is coming from. And so emotional empathy differs from cognitive empathy. Um, we're not just understanding someone, we're actually feeling what they're feeling. And then this third level of empathy is where we go to a completely different place whereby the third level, which is called compassionate empathy, is where we actually are moved to act. We're actually moved to help someone. The best example of this is you know, the Good Samaritan. Uh, very few of us act on something that we see on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's someone who might be stepping into a puddle or someone who needs help with a door. We could literally watch someone who might not be able to um, open a door and we could have cognitive empathy. If we've ever been in a position where we, where we haven't been able to open a door, we can feel that through our emotional empathy. But then when we go to a whole nother level, which is actually helping them open the door so that they can walk through it, that's where we're demonstrating compassion and empathy. So we not only understand the predicament they might be in, we not only feel what they're feeling, but we're spontaneously moved to actually help them out. And this, in my view, I think there are times where it can require either cognitive or emotional empathy. But in many cases, in my experience, when I have felt compassionate empathy, it's also when I have felt or had 
both cognitive and emotional empathy. So when it comes to our roles as leaders, this to me is kind of what makes really powerful leaders as powerful as they are. Because in the context of leadership, perhaps the greatest tool that we have is our listening ability, is being able to allow any one of our team members to share what it is that they need to share, when they want to share it, how they want to share it, and listen with our full attention and our full being so that we can fully process and understand what it is that they're communicating to us. Not just with their words, but also through their nonverbals, through their uh, facial expressions, and what is not being said. When we do this, what happens is we get into this really incredible you know, dance, if you will, where our emotions actually influence one another. And so our ability to demonstrate empathy through the form of listening as leaders allows us to then actually influence the other person in a very positive way because they know that they're being heard, they know that they're being listened to. Um, as leaders, we become better as a result at recognizing and meeting the needs that our team actually has. And what has been found in study after study is that uh, leaders who are described as being empathic tend to be viewed as more effective leaders and are higher performers. In fact, one of the studies that I had found was one that was done by the Center for Creative Leadership, where they looked at a sample of um, about 7,000 leaders from a few dozen countries. And um, I'm going to read a quote from their study. In their study, they said, our results reveal that empathy is positively related to job performance. Managers who show empathy, who show more empathy toward direct reports are viewed as better performers in their job by their bosses. And that empathic emotion as rated from the leader's subordinates positively predicts job performance ratings from the leader's boss. So that right there uh, is just one more validation point of how important this can be um, for us as leaders, whereby demonstrating empathy, listening carefully to people, allows us to be viewed as approachable, um, allows us to be viewed as being an effective leader, and ultimately allows us to be viewed as, as higher performers. And needless to say, for all of us, whether we're in leadership roles or not, we have this amazing power to demonstrate empathy in our day-to-day -day interactions. Um, I think it's safe to say that in a very abstract way, as well as in many cases in a concrete way, we are all leaders, um, whether we're leading people or whether we're just leading ourselves. And so there's something also to be said for self-empathy and self-compassion that um, enables us to become better at who we are and what we do. So this is a topic that as I said, is near and dear to my heart. It's something that I have shared very um, openly with many people within Junto and, and outside of Junto, and uh, is something that I have found to be far more complicated than I ever imagined it would be. And even though I've only shared this in, the, in about the last uh, 15 minutes or so, is something that I know can be addressed with many hours of study and practice. But I'll close with uh, the shared experience that um, the more I've continued to learn about empathy, the more that I continue to actively practice it, all three levels, cognitive, emotional, and compassionate, 
the better my relationships have become and uh, the more satisfied I've become with my growth as a person and as a leader. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.